So we can hit double digit cash on cash in a rising interest rate environment and inflationary environment that we see today. We haven't found other asset classes where those dynamics are true. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Sam Rust. Joining us today is Philip Block, who's one of the managing partners of LBX Investments. Formerly, Philip was a senior managing director at RealtyMogul.com, where he created the commercial lending business and led institutional capital market efforts. Prior to that, he was VP of Corporate Finance and Capital Markets at Centerline Capital Group, uh, has a BBA cum laude from George Washington University, and graduated with from the general course at the London School of Economics with a degree in finance. Philip, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. So for our audience, going to set the stage a little bit. If you haven't ran across Philip before, um, normally we have folks who are more embedded in residential real estate, whether that's single family or multifamily. But I, I was really excited to see Philip pop onto my booking screen. We're going to be talking today quite a bit about retail, which is not something that is maybe front of mind for a lot of retail investors, no pun intended. But in my research, retail is one of the most under the radar real estate plays out there, especially over the last five or six years, multifamily has been the sexy beast. And if you were willing to dig a little bit, maybe you went self-storage or maybe you went industrial, but there was a lot of what seemed to be prevailing macroeconomic factors that were headwinds for retail. But maybe the story is a little bit more nuanced than just, hey, the internet is here, Amazon is king, and shopping in person is dead. Maybe I'll let you kind of kick it off there, Philip. But if there's one myth that you would like to dispel today about investing in retail, specifically shopping centers, what would it be and why? Well, I don't want to get the, the word out too wide. Prices might start going up. And what you just said is absolutely true. We are contrarians by nature, Rob Levy, my partner and I, I think. We understand multi. We come out of a large multifamily platform. Centerline was largely a multifamily uh, lender and investor. And what we've found is when everybody rushes to one side of the aisle at one group of capital, you know, and everybody's running away from retail or, or frankly, any bucket, there's opportunity. And so when we set out to figure out where we wanted to place our capital personally and where we wanted to invest. This is going back six years or so. All the talk was the retail apocalypse and you know CNN headlines about the death of retail and Amazon taking over. And, and what we found is that there's nuance to that. And Frankly, the last two years in COVID has proven out our thesis because we're able to buy shopping centers at, you know, we bought from seven to nine, 10 cap type pricing, depending on the asset and location and kind of the, the makeup. And we've collected 100% rents. We've had a crazy leasing momentum. Almost all of our shopping centers are full. Um, in certain cases, you know, we're kicking tenants out and bringing in kind of better tenants or replacing things, selling out parcels. So we can hit double digit cash on cash in a rising interest rate environment and an inflationary environment that we see today, we haven't found other asset classes where those dynamics are true. That's certainly not the case in multifamily. You mentioned on your website that you're pursuing both a value add and core plus investment strategy. And so in multifamily terms, you know, those are very familiar. Value add, we're going to renovate units, we're going to invest some capital. And then core plus, you know, maybe we're buying 90s, 2000s, even newer vintage in high growth markets and just kind of let them sit and work or function mostly as an annuity. What's the difference or the 
nuance for shopping centers. Where, where are you guys adding value? Is that primarily on lease up? Is that turning over tenants, some combination of the above? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. And you're right. Some of this is semantics and how people want to define things. I think of it in kind of overall return profile. And the way we think about all, frankly, all real estate investment across the board is what to us feels like an appropriate risk-adjusted return. What's the return? How much risk are we taking? When I think about kind of core plus and value add, how much stuff are we doing? So you ask, what's the value add? There's typically what I'm looking for is in-place cash flow with some ability to some combination, push rents, lease up vacant space, or kick out tenants that are paying low rents and bring in better credit tenants, higher rents. And out-parcel development and out-parcel sales are a big part of what we do. Because it's really interesting, overall shopping centers with, and when I say out-parcels for all your listeners, it's you know the McDonald's and a Chase Bank and a Chick-fil-A sitting in front of a grocer anchored shopping center or a Target anchored shopping center. And the whole thing gets priced kind of as one. So maybe you buy the whole thing, the out-parcels and the boxes behind. So maybe you've got a Kroger grocery store, a nail salon, and a bed Bath and Beyond, or you know, pick your kind of lineup, and you buy all of that for an eight cap, say, right? So you have positive leverage day one. You borrow at four and a half percent, now five percent, five and a half, you know, depending on what it looks like. So versus multifamily, where you probably don't have positive leverage day one. So you're clipping high single digit type of cash on cash, and then sell those out parcels to ten thirty one buyers at a four and a half cap or a five cap. And so your net cap rate on what you're left owning is maybe a 10 and your leverage is still at 5%. And suddenly you look pretty good. You're clipping 12, 13, 14%. You can refinance and get out all of your capital. It's been a nice arbitrage choice. Yeah, finding those unique value adders is a pathway to success. And you guys have obviously found that. Do you guys tend to market those out parcels yourself? Do you guys go through brokerage? I know there's some brokerages that specialize in those 1031 opportunities. How have you guys taken those to market? Yeah, always through brokers. I mean, especially in the 1031 market, you got to be in it. I think every day I'd love to sell without paying brokerage commissions, but they've got, it's like, who's in the market this week versus last week? It's pretty rare, I think, for you to be able to do it yourself. One of my questions, Philip, was related to COVID. And you kind of touched on this in your opening monologue. You know, in the multifamily side, we were all worried that our tenants were not going to pay. And then for better or for worse, the government stepped in and guaranteed rental payments or you know gave massive amounts of assistance. And delinquency was never as bad as we feared and really never even concerning, certainly did but not that big of a deal. I was under the impression that retail as a whole, it really depended on what kind of retail you were in. Um, And so it was kind of a mixed bag. I'm curious the direct impacts that you guys saw from COVID and how that has informed your acquisition strategy since. As I said, I mean, you're right. It it really was kind of confirming for what we've been doing. We, and I want to be clear, retail, again, retail gets painted with kind of a broad brush. There's bad retail, like, and there's too much retail in a lot of them. Somebody owns a lot of that stuff. And uh, you know, when I say it, I'm talking a C-mall anchored by JCPenney and Sears in the middle of America that's like the fourth mall in an area with a shrinking population, right? Like, I, I don't want that either. And by the way, we get asked all the time, I'm going on a kind of a tangent, but I get asked all the time, you know, why don't you buy that and redevelop it? I'm like, to what? Like, and people, And then I have some investors tell me, well, we're buying this because we're at land value or below land value. And I said, what's land value? What do you mean? Isn't land value 
less than zero, you have to pay taxes if you can't do anything with it. So I stay very far from that. What we saw through COVID is, um, I think what similar in a sense to multi that you have kind of your mom and pop tenants, that got some level of government assistance and you have a bunch of service. You know, if you, if you own kind of good meat and potato service type guys and grocers, grocers have done unbelievable, like the sales across the board at grocery stores, which you'd expect, right? They, people can't go uh, out to restaurants. So they started shopping more there. And, and what you've seen is like a Publix. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Publix, depending on where you are, but right, you, like throughout the Southeast and the biggest guy in, in Florida, their sales, and they've pr- said this publicly, they don't expect a decline back to the levels of pre-COVID. And we're seeing it because a bunch of our tenants report sales. They've done tremendously and they continue to. So I think that what it's taught us is kind of stick with that. If you buy, you know, Target has done tremendously. If you're in the best retail and the best locations with growing populations, you know, a good grocery store with term and you own shop space, that's what you want. I think where people got really hurt in retail is kind of the C malls that I mentioned and the wrong box space. You know, there are big boxes that have struggled. There's no doubt. And that's what's made a lot of the headlines. So there are boxes that do fine, but the general trend is a shrinking number of users and a shrinking size kind of footprint for those boxes. You have to be careful that you don't overpay for too much rent in the wrong size box. And I think, you you know, I mean, kind of to your point earlier, there's not that many. Like most people are familiar with multifamily syndicators, probably not retail as much. This is hard. We're professionals at this. I think kind of anybody can go buy an apartment building and get some friends to put some money in and you buy a hire a manager, right? And kind of clip. You can't do that in retail unless you want to lose all your money. Like you really need to be in the space every day, know exactly what the rents are know how much it's going to cost to replace those tenants, who needs to be in that market, who's leaving the market. Those are the things we kind of focus on every day. Again, this is from an outsider's perspective, Philip, but I'm always curious with multifamily, one of the blessings and curses, depending on uh, where you're at in your cycle, is your leases come up fairly frequently. So you're, you're able to adjust to market and your loss to lease factor is not super significant. If you're managing it well, it's easy to close that delta. I would imagine when you're buying Buying a shopping center, I mean, a, a hefty part of your due diligence is going to be on the current lease file and what those look like. But are there ways where you can capture that kind of lost value if you've got significantly under market leases? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. So every tenant has, you have different structures. The larger tenants have long, typically longer term leases, but even then it's 10 or 15 years with options. And there's typically rent bumps, even on your, the only guys that don't have rent bumps sometimes would be a grocer who may have 50 years of kind of flat rent, which by the way, it's great to buy them towards the end of those, because then you typically can get, you know, you've got, you've got leverage. You're right. It kind of works both ways. You have in the, in the shop space, you may have two or 3% annual bumps, maybe every five years you get bumps. So you're not experiencing the same type of annual ability to bump rents like you can in multifamily. But the other side to that is that all these tenants pay our expense recoveries. So if you think about today's environment, an inflationary environment where rents are, are rising, which I'm sure is what you're kind of thinking about. So in multi, you get to reset those rents annually. True. And we get some of that. But on the, the bigger hit, to be honest, or the, the bigger impact in my view, and I think what we've seen historically, is the expenses erode more than your gain in multi in an 
high inflation environment. In retail, our taxes, insurance, and CAM gets passed through. So if you're well occupied, you have no exposure to that. And all of your rent growth is kind of straight to the bottom line. And so, I mean, that's a, a really fantastic way to invest in an inflationary environment. Yes, maybe you're not staying quite up to market, but if your expenses are flat and you've got fixed rate debt, I guess that would be the other key. If all your expenses truly are fixed, um, then you get to take advantage of that rising tide with very little downside. Yeah. And a lot, listen, a lot of our cash flow comes from credit tenants on signed leases. They're not, Publix is not going to stop paying you. Home Depot, Target, et cetera. They're not going to just not pay because the market stuff and multi we've had, listen, we've had a 20 year run, everything. I get why we're kind of comparing to multi and I'm doing it too, because that's what people know, right? But we've had an unbelievable run. We'll see how that goes over the next five or 10 years. It's when you buy it three caps and leverage at 6% and everybody's pocketbook feels lighter because of inflation and the Fed gets it wrong, which you know are likely to kind of on purpose and you have kind of a harder landing. Those dynamics can be tough in multi. You know, I'm looking forward to hopefully picking things up in multi that are cheap because I think it's a great investment class, but you know, we might be in for some bumpy times. Yeah, I remember when I first started and I've been in this business very long, but you were looking at positive spreads between debt and your cap rate of, you know, maybe a hundred to 125 basis points. And then that widened out to almost 200 basis points during COVID. And now it's flipped. Most of the projects that I'm looking at you're at least 50 basis points negative. If at some point cap rates are going to have to start reverting back up, and there's not really a way that they can stay down as far as they have. Now, there's a ton of capital out there. I think it's still a good investment class, but that's what makes retail intriguing to me is it's a little bit of the redheaded stepchild. It isn't maybe quite as easy, and yet there's significant growth opportunities in the right niches. I'm curious how severely was liquidity affected during COVID for you guys? Just on the acquisition side, are there lenders that are comfortable continuing to lend during that process, getting comfortable with the individual assets? Or was it uh, a little bit of you know a go no, or no-go um, for a couple of months there? We had a year, I'm thinking just about a year where we bought nothing. And that was partly lender. I mean, I would say it was kind of lender driven in a sense, but the whole market froze. And so there were just weren't transactions. Now we were cash flowing and we were doing great, and, but I was bored on the acquisition side. And we were talking, we looked at some public companies and making larger plays. We looked, you know, we were talking to everybody, but almost across the country, you saw no trades during that period. I think there was the fear and thought that maybe there would be distress and opportunity. So there was some kind of element of people holding back, waiting for that. But yeah, lenders, the one major difference, multifamily, it will, at least for the foreseeable future, be supported by Fannie and Freddie. You know, when you've got government, effectively government guaranteed and subsidized debt, it's a tremendous thing. And and they and we that center line was a large agency lender. So we were a dust lender. Fannie and I mean it's just an amazing business and it, it provides so much liquidity in that space. You don't have that in retail. And I'm not a CMBS borrower. We are intentionally certainly leave money on the table with this, but to sleep better at night, we're we're not See it. We don't lock in kind of long-term fixed rate and deal with special servicers just to get leverage. I'd rather always be kind of lower leverage bank borrower, relationship type borrowers because in retail and commercial things come up, right? If something pops up, I call the relationship and say, Hey, this is what's going on. And we can sort through it um, very easily because they're all relationships. We've got big deposits with our banks and, you know, life companies are relationship guys. So it's been really beneficial to us now because we're borrowing 60, 65%. It's positive leverage. You kind of don't need that 
Whereas multi, you know, obviously you're trying to get 75, 80 maxing leverage. It's all about residual value and refinancing in the future and, and earning it. You know, most of our returns come from cash flow because we're paying 10% a year. You know, it doesn't take that much. If you pay 10% a year, it just doesn't take that much appreciation to hit a pretty good return. Frankly, not did just fine. Yeah. Most people, if you uh, told them you're going to get 10% a year, they'd be thrilled. Yeah. And tax adjusted, it feels really good. Do you guys do cost segregation studies on your facilities? We do. I wish I understood anything about it. You get it back and they like figure out how, like what the, the lifespan of like the doors and the windows and stuff, I guess, on, on these shopping centers. But it's amazing, especially after the last uh, tax reform. I mean, you have, you take most of it in the first year. And, you know, that's typically like three years of income that is, that you take as a loss in the first year. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah. The bonus depreciation, a lot of our investors it's one of the primary motivators for them to get into real estate is the fact that they can shield quite a bit of income, um, especially if you qualify as a real estate professional. So that's uh... exactly. So Philip, you've done quite a bit in the real estate world. What's been a key to your success over the years? Man, that's a good question. I, I will hope for more success. So I don't want to think of myself as too successful just yet. I honestly, I mean, there's different pieces to it, I think, but fundamentally partnering with good people like Rob, you know, Rob's a, just a close friend and a, and a great guy and has a, a ton of experience too. And working with people that you like and trust and do the right thing and buy good pieces of real estate and put on the right type of leverage and uh, you do just fine. And, you know, stepping aside from that, I think everybody's done pretty well over the last 10 years uh, or so. And, you know, real estate is fundamentally kind of gone up. But if you buy good real estate and you don't over leverage it, you do well in all times, right? You weather bad times, fine. And in good times, everything's great. And then last question, you're obviously dealing with a little bit different sector of the broker market than the rest of us, but uh, how are you finding deals these days? Yeah, I mean, that is the one. It's interesting, like certainly in in other sectors, you can find some off-market stuff and We've occasionally, but in in we are buying institutional assets. So I'm almost always buying from public REITs or large private equity funds or bank like pension funds you know, on occasion. That that type of seller, and they across the board will never sell direct or historically have not because they've told their investors they're going to go to market and get a market price and it doesn't look good for them if they don't. So we've got really good relationships with only JLL and CBRE are kind of the big guys across the board. And then there are, you know, in local markets, there are occasionally guys who, who do pretty well, but kind of fundamentally, those are your two largest shops. And we're normally competing with five people, you know, three, sometimes eight, sometimes it's not multi over the last few years where it's, you know, they send out an OM and there's a thousand people signed up and a hundred bids. That works to our advantage. And we're one of the few kind of consistent guys who we've never not closed on a deal we put under contract. They all know that. We've been one of the more active groups in our markets. And so we kind of get a first look, an early look, and, and a lot of intelligence from the brokerage community. That's fantastic. Well, Philip, thanks for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to have you learn a little bit more about this uh, underappreciated asset class. If folks want to check you out, learn more about what you're doing, how can they reach out to you? Easiest way is our website, lbxinvestments.com. And uh, my contact info is on there. Reach out anytime. We'd love to hear from people. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Philip. Thank you to our listeners for joining us. This is your host, Sam Rust, signing off. Thank you for being a loyal listener of the Real Estate Syndication Show. Please subscribe and like the show. Share it with your friends so we can help them as well. Don't forget, go to lifebridgecapital.com where you can sign up and start investing in real estate today. 
Have a blessed day.